This morning, uh, we're going to read our scripture from Ephesians chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus and uh, God's word for us today. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of the Lord. You know, it's uh, interesting, like most other parents, every year um, at birthdays and Christmases, I, I, I say to my kids, what is it that you would like for Christmas or birthdays or whatever? And uh, every year when I ask my oldest son, Micah, what he wants, I always get the same answer. And it's actually two letters, and they're the same two letters year after year after year. D-S. I want a DS. And every year, uh, he gets the exact same answer from me. And there are also two letters. N-O. No. <laughs> and so this year, it didn't come as much of a surprise to Beth or myself when... Uh, when we said to Micah, what do you want for Christmas? And he said, I, I, I want a DS. And again, this year, like in other years, we gave him the same answer. No. However, we went out and we bought him a DS and, and we decided that that was what we were going to get him for Christmas. Now, on Christmas morning, I managed to time the photographs of him opening his presents just bang on right. I got the picture as he picked up the box and with anticipation, I think he knew what he was getting, but with anticipation he began to unwrap the box. I then got the moment of disappointment on his face when he opened up the box and said, oh, it's just clothes. Right? Nobody likes to see that, eh? And then once again I snapped the picture at the exact right moment when he grasped what was going on and that little light bulb came on and he said, there's something more in this box. And then again, I snapped that picture at the right moment and I caught the exhilaration in his face when he realized that I didn't just buy him a DS, but I bought him a 3DS. And in that moment, with my child, I became the coolest dad on the planet. You know what? I, I have to admit, that was kind of a thrilling experience for me. Why? Because I've, I've never been the cool dad. The embarrassing dad, I'm that all the time. But uh, never the cool dad. 
And uh, so that was kind of exciting, and it's been exciting ever since to watch him walk around and tell everybody on the street, yeah, I got a DS for Christmas or whatever, right? So now you can only imagine the disappointment that I felt on Boxing Day when he came to me and he said, Dad, you only bought me one game. I am bored with my one game. I want a new game. All of a sudden, cool dad was gone. I missed being cool dad. I have to admit that. And so everything inside of me wanted to just run out to Toys R Us with him and say, let's stock up, let's buy all the games that we possibly can. Everything inside of me wanted to be the cool dad who said, I'm going to make you happy at any cost. However, sensible, or as some would call him, embarrassing dad, kind of kicked in in that moment. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, you've been saving your allowance for months now so that you can go out and buy your own DS. Why don't we take your allowance money and buy you a game? So as we went to the store and as we're standing there, we didn't count out like most people, $1, $2, $3. What we did count out is one week's allowance, two weeks allowance, three weeks allowance. And I knew right in that moment that cool dad was dead. He was buried. He was gone and never to return. But you know, for just a moment, I want us to look at life from the perspective of that seven-year-old child. In that moment, would you rather have, when you're looking at your games, would you rather have cool dad, who's going to run out and buy you whatever you want, or sensible dad? Any guesses? Come on. Cool dad, that's exactly right. We all want the cool dad. Cool dad gives us great gifts that feel really good right here, right now in this moment. However, it doesn't take long before that feeling of excitement wears off. And so cool dad has to keep topping up the gifts and he has to keep building on them and adding to them because the excitement quickly fades into emptiness, doesn't it? As a parent, I have a responsibility to look past the moment. I have a responsibility to give my children a gift that's probably better than a 3DS game. What is that gift? Well, wisdom, character, hope, love, even the ability to be a parent to their own children. And as a parent, I hope and I trust that sensible dad can give gifts that are far greater than cool dad ever could. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 to 11, we read, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask. You know, when I read this passage, it does come across like God wants to be the the cool dad or cool God who, when we ask him for something spectacular, finds great joy in giving us the desires of our hearts. And like me, 
God finds it exhilarating to watch the faces of, of us when we open up the package, when we move the clothes to the side and discover that we've received something cooler than what we'd ever imagined. You know what? This passage tells me that God likes being the cool God. However, I want to flip it around a little bit for you. And I want to reword it to say, which of you, if his son is hungry and asks for a stone, will actually give him a stone? No. You'd give him bread. And which of you, if his son is hungry and asks for a snake to eat, will actually give him a snake? No, you'd probably give him prime Alberta beef. If you, who are evil, can sort out the difference between a good gift and a bad gift, how much more does God have the ability to sort out a good gift from a bad one? Now, I want you to understand, what I've done here in rewording the passage, that wasn't what Jesus was trying to communicate in this moment. However, I do believe that it's an accurate reflection of God's heart when I read the rest of Scripture. See, God isn't just the cool God who shells out money. He doesn't just give us money when we come to him and demand it. He's also the sensible God who doesn't want his children to grow into selfish, overly ambitious, Paris Hilton-type adults who simply go out and name it and claim it. God looks at the gifts that he wants to give us and he says, how is this going to benefit you? How does this strengthen you? How does this change you? How does this allow you to grow into the person that I want you to become? Do you know Ephesians 1 tells us that there are gifts that God loves to give us so much so that when we open these gifts, God snaps a photograph of us. He sees the anticipation, followed by the disappointment, followed by the light bulb coming on, followed by the, ex- the exhilaration of pulling the gift out of the box and realizing just how good those gifts really are. Now, as we unwrap God's gift to us, we typically discover that there are several emotions that we experience. And usually I I find that we experience this wide range of emotions in this order. First of all, there's the anticipation, right? I hope that God is going to answer my prayer in the exact same way that I started out. Why? When I pray, I I, I expect that's what God is going to do. I hope that that's what God is going to do. I then experience a sense of disappointment. I realize that I'm not getting exactly what I'd asked for. I might be getting something different. Things might not be the same as what I'd started out with. I then find myself surprised. Why am I surprised? It's that point, that moment of understanding when I realize exactly what it is that God is trying to do in that moment followed by a sense of exhilaration or that that moment when I start to see and experience the benefit of God's good gift in my life. Unfortunately for most of us, we only experience the first two of those emotions, hope or anticipation and disappointment. You see, 
we come to God and we define what is or is not in our best interest. So we come to him and we say, this is exactly what's best for me. And I want you to give me what I think is best for me. And when God doesn't give me exactly what I ask for, or perhaps God begins working with me to refine what I'm asking for into something that's going to bring me more joy, I look and I say, okay, God said no. I'm going to accept that and I'm going to move on. He just, and maybe in reality, God didn't say no. Maybe it wasn't that he was silent in that moment. Maybe it was that God looked at us and said, you know what, I've got something different. Or maybe God is saying to us, I want you to clarify and understand a little bit more carefully what it is that you're asking for. If we follow through or, or, and listen, maybe we discover the answer wasn't no. Maybe we just discover that it's different. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul prays that the Father would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? so that you might know him better. You know, the word wisdom in the Greek is actually Sophia. And Sophia could be used to describe a person who is relentlessly pursuing, relentlessly trying to discover some kind of understanding, or in this case, um, the mind of God. And the only way to gain the wisdom of God, and Sophia is translated as wisdom, the only way to gain this wisdom is to have a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. We see here the word revelation, right? Um, To find God's wisdom for our lives involves that relentless searching of God's mind. And so Paul prays for the enlightenment of the mind. In the movie Evan Almighty, and I think we need to move one more slide forward. Uh, In the movie Evan Almighty, which is probably one of the best Hollywood movies on prayer, and some might actually argue that it's the only Hollywood movie on prayer. At the very beginning of the movie, Evan's wife, Joan, begins by praying that God's family, or God would teach their family how to love each other. It's a prayer. As the story unfolds, Evan begins building a boat on the front lawn. And he begins growing out a beard, and his career starts to take a backseat to this new project or this boat building. And soon the kids become involved in the project, and life continually takes a turn for the weirder and weirder. And eventually Joan, who's sitting in a restaurant talking with a waiter, and the waiter is actually really God in this story. She's complaining about how her husband has begun building an ark and is growing out her beard. And the waiter, also known as God, replies, let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If he prayed for courage, does God give him courage? Or does he give him opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for their family to be closer, do you think that God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? 
Essentially, what we're learning here is that God doesn't look to answer prayer at a surface level. What he does want us to do is he wants us to dig down deeper. And so he puts us into situations and scenarios where our character is refined and it's developed. And when we come to him and we say, God, I need you to transform my life or to change me. He doesn't just zap us with some magical patience potion. But he partners with us. And he puts us into positions where we learn patience. You know, as God gives us character, God puts us into places where we need to come to him and say, you know what, God, I feel like my whole world is falling apart. And so I need you to give me the strength to get through this moment. I need you to give me the ability to be patient right now. And so what we learn is that when, when God answers our prayer, I need to not only be prepared for his answer, but I need to be prepared to respond to his answer. Am I going to respond in that moment with patience? Or am I going to buckle underneath the pressure? You know, when I was growing up, my mom would regularly require us kids to to pick the weeds out of her flower bed. And it was usually done on a hot and sunny afternoon, and my brothers and I, would we would want to be out playing or doing anything but pulling weeds from the flowers. I, I hated this particular job. And uh, one afternoon in particular, when my mom said, we need you to go out and weed the flower bed, or I need you to go weed the flower bed, all I did was I pulled out the weed whacker. And uh, I, I thought, it's a weed whacker, that's its job, is to get rid of the weeds. And so all I did is I cut all the weeds off at the surface level, and then I walked away. Now, it didn't take long before my mom came, and she found me and dragged me back to the flowers saying, you know what, Corey, the job isn't finished yet. Now, naturally, I protested. And I said, Mom, it is done. Look at all the weeds. They're cut down. Now, I was right. On the surface, the weeds appeared to be gone. However, my mom then said, you know what? You need to pick up all the weeds and you need to put them in a garbage bag. And then I opened my big mouth like I often do. And I said, Mom, it's all about the circle of life. These weeds will eventually rot and they're going to provide nutrients back into the soil. My mom replied, not until after they've planted their seeds back in the soil and in two days you're going to have even more weeds than what you started out with. When weeding the flower bed, you must physically remove the weed and the root from the soil. And you know what? The same is true with our spiritual lives, isn't it? Unless the sin is completely removed, it just simply grows back. And when it grows back, it's oftentimes stronger and more powerful than it was before we just simply cut it down. Just because I can't see the root of my sin, just because I can't see 
how it affects my attitude or because I've become so comfortable with it doesn't mean that it's not going to still fester within the depths of my soul and it doesn't mean that it's not going to have an effect on the rest of my life. If I am going to grow beyond my insecurities, if I am going to grow beyond my selfishness and my sin, I need to be prepared to dig in. I need to be prepared to find that root and pull it out. But you know what? Once I've dealt with a sin or some type of hidden insecurity, a new one is going to appear. And God is going to require me to begin this process of digging it out over and over again. In Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul prays that the Ephesians would understand God's heart, he's not praying that the Ephesians would have an understanding about the facts of God. When Paul prays that the Ephesians would have an understanding about God, he's not praying that they would have the ability to defend the existence of God. What he is praying is that they would have a hunger to chase after his wisdom, that they would have a hunger to chase after his heart, and that they would understand that wisdom and understand what God truly wants to do in their lives. And so when Paul prays for wisdom and revelation, he's praying that he would reveal himself to the people of Ephesus and tell them, this is exactly what I want done in your life and in your world. Now, the second part of Paul's prayer is that God's blessing would provide hope, which comes from the enlightenment of the heart. In verse 18, Paul writes, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Do you know prayer can be described as a progressive conversation that flows all through life? Prayer is progressive because I speak and I ask God to do something for me. And if I'm listening, God will move me a step or two towards understanding. My prayer deepens and it changes and I ask God for something a little bit more specific because prayer is a conversation I'm forced to listen and God again moves me another step or two towards understanding and again my prayer deepens and I ask God for something yet again a little bit more specific let me demonstrate Sean is a fictional husband Okay, and uh, he is concerned that his marriage is beginning to struggle. It's it's not in danger. It's not falling apart. He's just starting to become concerned that he and his wife, who's also fictional, named Lindsay, are beginning to grow distant, and he doesn't understand why she is not showing him the the affection that he actually believes that he deserves. So, out of a genuine concern. Sean prays that God would do something in his wife that might allow her to see that he's a good husband and is truly worthy of her love. Now, at the very beginning of this process, Sean is putting all of the weight and the need for change on his wife. Okay? Some level, he probably does realize that he carries some responsibility for what's going on in the marriage. In fact, he he does get that. However, he doesn't understand and he doesn't know what he should be doing differently. And he looks and says, I'm doing it good. 
So maybe the problem isn't with me, it's with my wife. And so that's where he starts with his prayer. Now, because he doesn't know how he should be praying, his prayer begins very vague. God, do something in my wife. Do something in Lindsay. But you know what? God hears the cry of his heart. And uh, God begins to teach Sean what he needs to be doing in his prayer and how he needs to be praying. He works with Sean to refine his prayer. So over the next few weeks... God begins to open his eyes a little bit. And he begins to realize that maybe Lindsay, maybe his wife, doesn't feel loved. And so he prays, God, I need you to allow Lindsay to see that I love her. Right? Do you hear what's happened? There's just that little bit of a shift now. Okay? He's still putting the need for change on his wife. However, God has begun to shine a light into his life and he's beginning to see kind of some of the deeper levels of the problems that are going on. And so over the next few weeks, as he's watching Lindsay interact with the kids and he's watching her interact with her friends, his prayer life again begins to shift a little bit. And this time he says, he he begins by asking the question, what does it mean to Lindsay that she would feel loved. Okay? It now takes on that next level. And he begins to observe his wife. And what does he discover? Well, he learns that her love language is the gift of service. And so for all these years, the words of encouragement that he's been pouring out on her have, have not necessarily met her need for love in the way that he intended that they would. So he evaluates his marriage. And he says to himself, you know what? I am serving my wife. I do the dishes. I sweep the floors. I bath the kids. I put them to bed. And the list goes on and on. So out of frustration, Sean prays, God, why doesn't Lindsay see all that I'm doing for her? And as time moves on, Sean starts to become a little bit bitter. And he starts to ask the question, why is it that Lindsay doesn't seem to be responding to my gestures of love? And then one day while Sean is doing the dishes and he's cursing at Lindsay under his breath, God hits him over the head with a baseball bat. And he says, you know what? Your attitude towards serving your wife stinks. There's something wrong. Yes, you're doing a lot for your wife, but you resent the fact that she doesn't appreciate it. True love gives itself unconditionally. And suddenly he realizes that if his wife is going to understand and accept and appreciate this demonstration of love, his attitude needs to change. So how does he respond? He starts by confessing. And then he says, God, I need you to help me change my attitude about Lindsay. Again, his prayer life shifts. Now he's praying, not that God would change his wife, but that God would change him. That God would do something in him. So over the next few months, God begins to show Sean that that there is more that he can do to serve his wife than simply washing dishes and putting kids to bed and sweeping floors. God begins to open his eyes and he sees that at the end of each day his wife is exhausted. And so he prays that God would give her the strength to make it through each day. Once again, he's putting the focus back on her, not on him. Right? 
God responds by showing Sean maybe he needs to do something. Maybe he needs to do something to help and to deal with the situation. He's now serving his wife, but he's doing it in a way that's going to be beneficial to them. And God answers his prayer by strengthening his marriage. It doesn't happen overnight. In fact, what I just described in a couple of paragraphs likely occurred over a period of months or even years. But each step of the way, God puts Sean into different positions and into situations where he's able to learn what it means to show his wife love. He answers, God answers the original prayer to change Lindsay. But he does so by changing Sean. Now in this story, we need to understand that Sean's prayer is progressive because of it, it evolves. His prayer is progressive because it develops. His prayer is progressive because it grows and it changes as circumstances change. We need to understand that his prayer is a conversation but he, because he asks for God's help and God listens. His prayer is a conversation because after he speaks, God speaks and Sean listens. It's a conversation because after Sean has finished listening, he responds. And once again, God listens and then God responds. And on and on that cycle goes. You know, when God wants to work in our life, he doesn't just deal with the surface issues. He digs down deep so that we are able to see the fullness of what he wants to accomplish. He takes what we ask for, and he goes three or four miles deeper below the surface than we thought he would. And step by step, he moves us forward by showing us something new. And as soon as we hear it, and as soon as we are receptive, he moves us forward. He digs and he pushes our hidden sins and our deeply rooted insecurities to the surface of life. Why? Because it's not until they're at the surface that they can be dealt with and resolved. In Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now in Isaiah 55, the people of God have come to him out of frustration because they've been trying to figure out their problems on their own without God's help. And so God comes to them and he says, Don't you get it? Don't you understand? I'm smarter than you are. I have, God says, I have the ability to look at and understand how it all fits together. He understands how my hidden sin affects my family. And he understands how my deeply rooted insecurity plays a role in causing me to do those sins in the first place. As God's adopted children, a part of our inheritance is given to us when we're facing challenges And God says, listen to me. I want you to hear what I've got to say. Don't run off and do your own thing. Take the time to listen. Take the time to hear. Because when you hear what I have to say, your world will be shaken to its very foundation. 
So the third element of Paul's prayer is that we would be wise enough to submit to God's leadership, which is an enlightenment of our lives. Do you know, when God begins to get a hold of my life, I begin to see and I begin to understand that I have nothing to fear and that and that I can be vulnerable with him. I can show him exactly what's going on. And so when I enter into his presence, I speak honestly, and I speak openly about my fear and about my failure. I confess my sin, and I speak freely about it. I I open up and I say, God, this is where my hidden insecurities are. But you know what? I also need to trust him when he says that it's okay. I'm going to work with you to your benefit. And I, may, and I need to trust that although what he's doing is painful, it's designed in such a way as to draw out his character and personality in my life. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, Paul is very clear. All things, all things on earth have been put under Jesus' authority and under his leadership. And therefore, he has a unique ability to understand the depth of a problem, not just at the surface, but at the deeper levels. To follow his leadership from my life will change who I am. To obey him and to obey his instructions will give me a deeper sense of joy and fullness than doing my own thing. Why? Because he sees the end of the path and he knows where I'm going. Now, I have a friend who is very proud of his Jeep. One more slide, I believe. I have a friend who's very proud of his Jeep. And in particular, he's very proud of the 4x4 feature on that Jeep. And uh, I've learned that every time I get into his Jeep, I'm going to end up walking home. One afternoon, he and I were planning to go on a canoe trip. And so, Um, we were borrowing a canoe from a farmer friend of ours and this farmer said to us, one more slide please, Um, the farmer said, uh, you're going to have to walk out into the field three kilometers and you're going to have to carry the the canoe out because the field has been drenched in rain and a few days earlier his his truck had gotten stuck. Now my friend looked at me and he said, "Eh, not a problem, I drive a Jeep. And so we drove three kilometers out into the field. We loaded the canoe up onto the top of the Jeep. And then we walked back out of the field. And then we walked another five miles to a spot where we could get a cell signal. And we called his wife to come and pick us up. Over a period of about a decade, I have learned that when this particular friend says, Hey, do you want to ride? My answer is, I'm not getting into that Jeep. You know, in our our Christian journey, we often get stuck. Why? Because we haven't learned the lessons that God wants us to learn. We repeatedly, in spite of warnings, get back into that Jeep. And God will allow us to drive out into the field and get stuck in the mud, requiring us to walk an even longer distance looking for a way out. Why? He wants us to grasp the lessons, and to live with the consequences of our action. To this, one might just simply ask, why doesn't God just give me a simple answer? Why doesn't he just tell me what I'm doing is wrong so that I don't have to learn the hard way? You know what he did? He probably just didn't listen. 
He allows me to make the decisions as to what I do with the lessons he teaches me. And with every passing moment, I'm going to make the decision as to whether or not I'm going to listen as the Holy Spirit speaks into my life and as he speaks into the depths of my shame. He takes his time. He probes the depth of my life. Why? Because I have a small mind. And he wants to make sure I get what he's trying to teach me before he moves on to the next lesson. And it's not until hindsight becomes 2020 that I'm really able to look back and I'm able to say, you know what? I understand the lessons that I was supposed to learn decades earlier. When I meet with God and when I passionately pursue his wisdom and when I allow him to boldly transform my life, I begin to have a deeper understanding of the joy and purposes he has for me. This morning as we look back on 2011, what lessons, what gifts was God trying to teach you? Did you receive them? Did you embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or did you overlook misunderstand the difficult, the painful gifts that God tried to give you. When you came to him and asked him to speak into your life, did you misinterpret his desire to change, uh, to refine your prayer as the word no? Or were you listening? As a new year dawns, and as we look forward to 2012, I want to encourage you to begin the year by asking God to give you gifts and blessings that are far deeper than the gifts and the blessings that you had ever imagined. And as 2012 dawns on us, I want to invite you to commit this coming year to the Holy Spirit by telling Him that you have no intention of settling for second best. I want you to Make that commitment to come to him and say, God, I need the best gifts that you have for my life. And then make a commitment to relentlessly pursue after those gifts, the transforming power of God in your life. This morning, I want to invite you to come to the cross. As we come to the cross and as we sing, it's so sweet to trust in Jesus. Come to the cross when I don't understand what he's doing. When I don't understand why God is challenging me the way that he is, come to the cross and say, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust you. How I've had the opportunity to prove you over and over again. How I've had the opportunity, Lord, to let you speak into my life and be prepared. Lord, let me respond and to trust that you know how it all fits together. It's here when I take him at his word and I rest in his promise that I accept the greatest gift of all, the transforming power of God. 